Hello, greetings, welcome to Bear Talk. I'm David Bear, and today the theme is Ukraine. What's going on? What's the situation in Ukraine? There's a war there. Uh, what's the situation with the war, and how is that affecting uh, the churches in Ukraine? That's our theme. Uh, I'm going to get to it in a minute. Before I get to actual the actual discussion, I have a couple of housekeeping matters I just want to address. This is the fifth episode of of uh, Bear Talk. I've done this now for a while and I kind of got the hang of it. And so I just want to make clear my plan uh, now is to release one episode a month. And I think I'll do that at the sort of at the end of the month or the beginning of the month, the turn of the month. Uh, so once a month when the month starts to change. So this episode is being released in the end of July and the next episode will be released at the end of August. That's about what what I can. Uh, one episode is about what I can do um, a month. Um, so I'm pretty happy with the uh, it's just starting out and I'm pretty happy with uh, the number of listeners most of my listeners are in Texas but I'm actually reaching people across the country on the north in the northeast on the Pacific uh, in California uh, Oregon and Washington in the Midwest don't quite have very many listeners on the south in the southeast yet but maybe I will and then in addition uh, I am getting uh, international uh, listeners in uh, uh, Britain Hungary, Germany, Belgium, Spain, Sweden, Ireland. Uh, and I want to thank all of you uh, for listening to my podcast. I, I appreciate it. Uh, I'd also appreciate getting any feedback. If you Every episode uh, has a post on my webpage. You can always go to the webpage and make some comments. Uh, the web the page is hdavidbearbaer.com. You can find uh, some program notes there and leave some comments. Comments, or you can always send me an email directly at dbear, B-A-E-R, at T-L-U dot E-D-U. Uh, anyway, so let's get to the episode today. As I said, it's uh, about uh, Ukraine and the situation in Ukraine. My guest is Cyril Hooverin, who is a Ukrainian priest in Archimandrite in uh, the Orthodox Church in Ukraine. Currently, Cyril is a professor in ecclesiology, international relations, and ecumenism at the University College Stockholm. He did his uh, doctoral work in, in Durham University. Uh, he's got uh, quite, uh, he's traveled around quite a bit. He has an, an impressive list of uh, publications, and so I wanted to talk to him about uh, the situation in Ukraine and about his book, Political Orthodoxies, The Unorthodoxies of the Church Coerced, uh, which was published in 2018 by Fortress Press. It's a short book, but it deals with sort of theological errors that uh, churches are attempted to make. Um, and so he, uh, Cyril agreed. I managed to catch him uh, when he wasn't traveling in Kiev. And we met up by Zoom and had a good conversation, um, which I'm going to uh, connect you to in one moment. There's one little hiccup in our conversation. I, I foolishly forgot to hit record as we started the conversation. 
But luckily, Cyril had been recording the conversation, too, so I've had to edit the two recordings, his and mine, and you'll notice a change in the quality, at least of my voice, about halfway through or 20 minutes into the conversation, but that's no big problem. Um, And just so you know, maybe you're curious what's going on, that's what's going on. So with that said, let me uh, join you in to my conversation with Cyril. Cyril Hoverone, thank you very much for coming on my podcast. Um, and thank you for having like me. <laughs> I, maybe just say a little bit. So my, my listeners, I think, are, are uh, not familiar with Ukraine and not familiar with orthodoxy and so forth. So maybe just start by saying a little bit about, introduce yourself a little bit in your background. Right, right. Yes. So my background is Ukrainian. I was born in Ukraine. I'm a Ukrainian citizen, uh, but I, I've been working for most of my time outside of Ukraine. I studied in, uh, in Greece first. <clears throat> I studied theology. Then I did my PhD in Durham in the UK. Um, then I worked for quite a, a long in Moscow, in the Moscow Patriarchate, in different administrative structures of the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, I worked in the Department for Christian Church Relations, in the Educational Committee of the Russian Church. Then I also um, I worked for a short while in Ukraine as a head of the external department of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, which is the largest uh, church in Ukraine. <coughs> Then I pursued an academic career, Uh, so I went to Yale and I spent some time as a research fellow at Yale University. Uh, I also spent some time as a a fellow at Columbia University. Um, I taught several years and and directed uh, an ecumenical institute at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. Uh, My last uh, stopover in my career, so to say, was uh, and, and continues to be uh, the University College Stockholm, uh, also known as uh, the um, uh, Theological School of Stockholm. Um, so my field, uh, my prime field is uh, um, is patristics. It's uh, about the. Uh, teaching of the fathers of the church, those Christian authors who lived in in the past, uh, but uh, also I uh, somehow moved to the field of uh, political theology, public theology. Um, well, my interest in this field was triggered by the developments in Ukraine, in my country, and its relationship with Russia. Um, and indeed, I think that one can hardly understand what is going on in the relations between uh, Russia and Ukraine nowadays, including the war uh, without taking into consideration religion because well well religion after the collapse of the Soviet Union which was officially an uh, atheistic state uh, you know there are some states where religion is established where, where which are you know officially religious so to say the Soviet Union was the officially uh, non-religious state an atheistic state uh, so after the collapse of this regime uh, religion religion uh, re- surfaced and uh, re-emerged uh, in, uh, to the public square in Russia and Ukraine, uh, something that uh, some scholars have called, including people like Jürgen, Jürgen Habermas in Germany, have called uh, post-secularity. Uh, well, not everyone agrees with this term because some people say that in some places like the, like the United States, secularity never 
uh, took hold. Therefore, there is no post-secularity, for instance, in the United States. Um, but in, in well, in the post-communist countries, it was certainly the case that uh, there was an officially enforced uh, state-enforced secularity, secularism, which collapsed, and then uh, the era of post-secularism came. Um, and uh, well, religion occupies a, a significant, I would say, a central part uh, in the public square in Russia, at least in the political discourses in Russia. It does not necessarily mean, does not necessarily translate to the numbers of churchgoers. Those numbers are still very low, and uh, according to different measurements, sociological measurements, it does not exceed, you know, uh, one-digit numbers in Russia. Um, uh, in Ukraine, it's much better. There are more churchgoers, and the church's religion plays a very important also role in uh, in the life, in the private lives of people, and also in the public square. Um, the difference. Okay, so let me just let's yeah. just. Uh, I mean, so because I think my like I my based in Texas, and they won't. My uh, listeners may not know even or really understand. Certainly, the students I teach won't understand. But sort of in Russia and Ukraine, you have orthodoxy. So but let me. So yeah. maybe we can just talk a little bit, of, explain that to people who don't even really know very much about Eastern Orthodoxy. But you you're also a priest, right? In, yes. In and which church are you a priest in? Well, Moscow Patriarchate, Russian Orthodox Church. Mo- Moscow Patriarchate. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So just maybe if you were just explaining to somebody who doesn't know anything or knows hardly anything other than maybe seeing a few pictures of uh, the character of, of Eastern Orthodoxy, how would you describe that? Well, that is the cradle of Christianity, uh, the East. Uh, that's where Christianity was born uh, and where it uh, took its shape, as we know it, uh, well, nowadays. Um, uh, and, uh, well, the East was a kind of dominant um, region for the development of Christianity during the first Christian millennium. Uh, then the East was occupied by, by what the scholars call Byzantium, which was not exactly Byzantium, it was a uh, Roman Empire. Uh, the Roman Empire that survived the sack of Rome in the beginning of the 5th century. As you know, well, Rome fell to the, what they called barbarians. Some people nowadays call it, you know, the great uh, immigration that happened at the time, uh, which is a probably a more correct uh, description of what happened. Well, those so, barbarians are probably my ancestors. Right. Anyway. Right. It's, yeah. Well, it's a, certainly it's a very pejorative uh, term for bar- for the barbarians. Well, they established their own states, as you know, in the in the Christian West, and uh, a new new states emerged out of those uh, you know barbarians, so to say, um, uh, peoples. But in the East, uh, the Roman Empire continued to exist and shaped uh, Christian traditions there. Uh, also, the Christian traditions in the East were shaped by the uh, by the dominance of Islam uh, after. Islam Islam emerged in the beginning of the 7th century, uh, vast territories of the East were occupied by by Muslim uh, uh, caliphate, essentially, and and Christianity uh, essentially uh, uh, had to survive under these circumstances. Uh, The Islamic uh, regime, uh, well, tolerated Christianity on the one hand, as it tolerated all the monotheistic religions, including Judaism, they called it the the people of of the book, the Bible. Uh, so, nevertheless, 
their uh, kind of coexistence of Christianity and Islam affected both Christianity and Islam. Uh, so those two factors that shaped Eastern Christianity, uh, the uh, Roman Empire on the one hand, which uh, continued to exist until the middle of the 15th century, when Constantinople, the capital of, of the Roman Empire, um, uh, fell under the Turkish uh, siege in 1453, and Islam, which also um, uh, exercised a great deal of influence, impact on, on Eastern Christianity. Eastern Christianity uh, does not constitute a majority uh, among, the, uh, among other Christian groups, in contrast to the first millennium when Eastern Christianity actually did constitute a majority among other Christian groups. So the Eastern Christians were the majority Christians, so to say. At the time, not anymore. Yeah. But so would you, did you say that, would you say orthodoxy predates Byzantium? So Byzantium is the sort of eastern part of the Roman Empire when we refer to Byzantium and its, its capital. Oh, certainly, yes. Constantinople yes. or what's today Istanbul. But you would say orthodoxy precedes even as earlier than Byzantium. Is that what you said? That's very true. Yes, exactly. Well, it happened that uh, that orthodoxy came to identify itself, itself with Byzantium uh, after the 4th century, but it certainly pre-existed. Um, and the basic principles of Orthodox Christianity were articulated even before Byzantium, like, for instance, like by the authors like Saint Irenaeus of Lyon, uh, who was a bishop in Lyon in France, but he was originally from Asia Minor. He was a Greek bishop in the West, which was a very interesting kind of uh, combination of identity. Uh, and he was one of the major contributors to the formation of, of the even of the notion of orthodoxy. Um, yes, uh, well, the, the, the uh, legalization of Christianity happened in the fifth, fourth century under Constantine. Uh, it occurred both in the West and in the East, and only the Eastern part of Christianity eventually uh, continued to exist, being embraced by the state in the East, while in the West uh, it had a different journey. And right, so all the centers of Christianity were basically in the east and what would exactly. be Byzantium except for Rome, exactly. right, until Byzantium basically falls to yeah. uh, the Ottomans. At the same time, at the same time, in some remote places like in uh, in, in Rus, new centers yes. of orthodoxy emerged. So Rus uh, was a, a huge medieval state. I think it was uh, the largest, uh, according by the territory, medieval state uh, that uh, was uh, expanded from you know from the white sea uh, next to the to the Baltic uh, uh, lands uh, down to the Black Sea it was a huge vast territory territory uh, which had its capital Kiev um, mm-hmm. that state was independent it was a independent independent principality which belonged to the Commonwealth of the Byzantine states so Byzantium was a very skillful you know diplomatic entity and it managed to you know to uh, earn a lot of allies, including the state of Kiev, Rus, and the people of Rus also received their baptism from Constantinople, and gradually they, you know, evolved into a, you know, into an important entity. When Byzantium fell, a part of the state uh, happened also to be under the uh, under the control of the Mongol Empire, another great huge empire uh, of the Middle Ages. Uh, so the Mongols destroyed Kiev in the middle of the 13th century. Uh, then um, what used to be the Kievan Rus. 
uh, was separated into two parts. One part belonged to the Commonwealth of the Polish and Lithuanian state, the so-called Rzeczpospolita, Republic of Poland and Lithuania. Another part belonged to the, to the Mongol state. Uh, so when Byzantium fell, a small principality on the territory uh, on the territories controlled by by the Mongol Empire, which was became known as Moscow, emerged as a leading power and gradually, uh, you know, uh, received a momentum for development, conquered uh, neighbor neighbor uh, principalities, and shaped its own statehood, uh, which became known as as uh, Russia nowadays. But it was not called uh, Russia before essentially before the 18th century. Before that, it was okay, called Moscovy, Mo Mo Moscow State. Yeah, okay, good. So Kiev was the capital of Rus, yes, right? And Kiev exactly. now is the capital of Ukraine. Exactly. And I did, And so when uh, Byzantium fell, or and then Rus sort of broke up and Poland or the whatever it was exactly. called, the Kingdom of Poland got part, part of Rus, and then the Mongols who were ruling in Russia, or what we call Russia, uh, got sort of the other part. And, okay, so that's kind of the, the ancient history, but, that, that's, but that's it affects, it affects yeah. the, the present history because at that time there were two Ruses, as it were, the Mongolian uh -huh. Rus with the center of Moscow and the Lithuanian Rus with the center, well, it floated yes. and it continues mm -hmm. to be essentially. Uh, the situation that we have now is, uh, is in, in some sense is the same. We, we still have two Ruses. One is, you know, uh, very Asian, kind of oriented to China. Uh -huh. By the way, at that time, uh, in the Middle Ages, Moscow uh, was uh, through a chain of, of you know, uh, uh, master states, was a part of the Chinese Empire, quite surprisingly. Right. And nowadays, uh, we still have the same kind of division, both politically and mentally. That Ukraine, which represents this kind of Lithuanian Rus, as it were, uh, which tends to be closer to, you know, to the Western democracies, including Poland and Lithuania. That's why we have Lithuania as our best friend, you know, on the modern scene, political scene, and it has, you know, ancient historical roots. Okay, good. So let's talk about what's going on in Ukraine uh, today or in recent times, okay? So just maybe get, describe the, you can describe how you see it, the sort of political situation in Ukraine. I'm sure that the war will be figuring that, but just what, what's the situation in Ukraine today? Well, yes, um, after Ukraine, well, after Ukraine obtained its, its independence, uh, it tried to balance its policies between Russia and the West, and never aligning with, uh, with either side, and neither with Russia nor with, uh, nor with Europe. Uh, in the same in the same time at the same time it developed a system a political system which was uh, relying to a great extent on corruption uh, I would say and um, it uh, it was in a kind of limbo neither the West nor the East neither Europe nor Russia but uh, heavily influenced you know by the Russian uh, corruption schemes the sort of schemes that uh, reach out to Europe and you know to, uh, to, to other countries nowadays unfortunately well to the countries like Hungary for instance or you know or, or Slovakia I don't know uh, so uh, Ukraine was much more affected by uh, by this sort of uh, influence at the time and Ukraine decided to make uh, a decision 
uh, to align eventually with the West wholeheartedly uh, two times during two revolutions that we had in the recent history. Uh, we call them uh, Maidans, after the name of the main square in Kiev, which is called Maidan of, uh, Maidan meaning the square, which is actually a Turkish word, a square of independence. Um, that is the influence of Tatars because we were kind of we had a love-hate relationship with Tatars for a long time, but it's a different story. So, anyways, we had two Maidans, two revolutions, one in 2004 and another one uh, in the winter of 2013-2014. The last one was called uh, the Revolution of Dignity, uh, when the Ukrainian people, by the majority, decided to align with the European, you know, values and democracy uh, to disassociate themselves from Russia, and this, of course, caused uh, a huge huge resistance from Russia. Putin devised, you know, uh, instruments of uh, re-attaching Ukraine to Russia, re-incorporating Ukraine to what he envisaged as a kind of neo-Soviet empire. Uh, And he uh, made several steps, radical steps, to to do that, to achieve that. Uh, He also, yes, I should mention that he also... um, uh, was afraid that the model of uh, of the Church of Power in Ukraine, when people you know uh, got rid of of dictators and uh, decided whom they wanted them uh, to be ruled by, uh, that's how President Yushchenko was elected, and then uh, they got rid of Yanukovych in 2014, another Ukrainian dictator president. Um, so Putin was really afraid about this model of power because he wanted you know he envisaged for for Russia a sort of monarchical power without really people, you know, voting for uh, for their leaders uh, and, cho- and uh, electing their leaders and uh, to prevent the spread of the of the Ukrainian model of power, as it were, he also made uh, the same steps. They included the annexation of Crimea in 2014 and then the proxy war uh, in Ukraine, in the eastern part of Ukraine, in what we call Donbass area. Uh, uh, the war originally was fought by the Russian troops. Then they trained some local uh, local uh, paratroops, uh, like paramilitary troops, and uh, they supplied them, you know, with Russian we- weapons. And they still fight uh, a war. This war continues in Ukraine. Uh, it's now uh, we are now in the seventh year, as a matter of fact, of this war, um, and. Uh, we are concluding the seventh year of this war. So that's how does are. the war affect the uh, the mindset of people in Ukraine? What, how is this sort of experience? Is it a long-standing sort of stalemate war? How, how is that changing yeah. or affecting the mindset in Ukraine? Yeah, well, uh, well, it had different phases. Like, for instance, the first phase, uh, people, uh, a lot of people had to go and to fight, literally. Like, my brother was, uh, you know, recruited as a reservist, and uh, I know a lot of people who went as as volunteers to to fight in the east uh, some people died i think you can hardly find a family which has not been affected uh, either directly or indirectly in this in this sense um, also if you get if you go to cemeteries uh, in ukraine uh, Practically every cemetery has uh, fresh graves with, you know, with the fallen soldiers from the East Front. Uh, that is one thing. Another thing is that um, 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 Ukraine uh, has been uh, somehow, well, it is divided. 
in the times of war. We have just open collaborators, like people who openly say that, well, uh, we need to, you know, to give up and to, uh, uh, to, to give Russia whatever they want. Uh, we have even a party, a political party, uh, actually a major party, and then some minor parties that uh, uh, pursue the same agenda, you know, of, uh, of you know, giving up and, uh, and uh, giving Russia what it wants. Um, that is the, the former party of region now, they, they call, uh, they, they're called the, uh, the opposition party. Um, we also have people who really don't understand what is the point of this war, quite a few. Um, and of course, we have people who are very much, you know, in support of the Ukrainian cause in this war, and they they fight this war as the war, you know, as really as the war for for their independence. Uh, this also affects the political spectrum and the political messages. Uh, the political scene is quite divided, and every single politician has to, to you know, to um, um, uh, to position him or herself vis-a-vis -vis the war. Uh, like the former president of Ukraine, Petro Poroshenko, uh, he uh, adopted eventually a standpoint that is very much pro-Ukrainian, very much patriotic. Uh, well, uh, the present president, uh, Zelensky, originally, initially, did not seem to be very much in favor of the Ukrainian cause and was accused by, you know, by the patriotic forces that he wants to, to, uh, to compromise, you know, Ukraine uh, in negotiations with Putin. Eventually, he adopted a very patriotic standpoint as well. It seems that every president in, in his position uh, has to evolve in that direction and to, you know, to support the Ukrainian cause because it's a matter of survival, essentially. For the okay, good. So let, let's talk a little bit about how the um, situation in Ukraine has affected the Ukrainian churches or particularly the Orthodox churches. So I know that there is more than one. And, and I mean, there's been a lot of news about what's going on with the Orthodox churches in, in Ukraine. So maybe let's just talk a little bit about the, the impact of all of this on, on Ukrainian Orthodoxy. Right. Yes. Um, Yes, the Ukrainian church uh, has been divided since the independence of Ukraine. Um uh, there was a majority and there is still a majority church which belongs to the Moscow Patriarchate, which is the Orthodox Church. And by the way, Orthodox is the majority religion, the majority confession in Ukraine. Um, Ukraine historically also had a significant Greek Catholic Church, uh, at, at least since the end of the 16th century when uh, Ukraine, parts of Ukraine were part of the Polish state and Poland you know, imposed unionism. Unionism is when people preserve, well, communities preserve their uh, orthodox right, but they join the Catholic Church. They recognize the primacy of, of the Bishop of Rome and becomes a part of the, they become a part of the, uh, of the Catholic Church. So that church, Greek Catholic Church in Ukraine, uh, existed uh, until uh, the World War II uh, on the Western territories mostly. After uh, those territories, as I mentioned, were, were occupied by the Soviets, uh, Stalin organized in 1946 a council that uh, um, uh, essentially canceled the church, uh, abnulled the church. Uh, and the church had to uh, either to uh, you know, dissimulate with the Orthodox or to, to hide in underground or to emigrate. Many of them emigrated to the United States and Canada. Um, 
uh, and after the independence of Ukraine, the Greek Catholic Church re-emerged and became a significant part of the Ukrainian religious landscape. Uh, in addition to that, the, the Moscow Patriarchate, the Orthodox Church, became divided. A part of the church uh, uh, decided to get independence. Uh, it was a self-proclaimed independence. Uh, the movement towards this independence was led by the former uh, leader of the Moscow Patriarchate in Ukraine, Metropolitan Filaret Denisenko, who he who became elected as as the patriarch of this uh, self-proclaimed church. And what was the name of this uh, this one? Filaret, yeah, Filaret Denisenko. No, not okay, Filaret. But what's the name of the church that he started? Patriarchate. It was called Kievan Patriarchate. The, the Kiev Patriarchate. Okay. Yeah. So you have the Moscow Patriarchate. You, these are all Orthodox. The Orthodox, Ukrainian Orthodox Church, Moscow Patriarchate. Then you had a Kiev Patriarchate. Yes, and also there was a third minor church, which was called Ukrainian Autocephalus uh, Church, Orthodox Church. Uh, so we have three uh, Orthodox churches. Two of them were not recognized by the rest of the uh, Orthodox uh, world. Uh, in this sense, they were not, we call it not legitimate. They were legal in, in the Ukrainian, uh, you know, by, according to the Ukrainian law, but they were not legitimate in the sense of they were not recognized by other Orthodox churches. And only, only the Moscow Patriarchate was uh, the church recognized by the rest of the Orthodox churches. And we had the Greek Catholic Church as the fourth church, which was well, technically and, and essentially a part of the Catholic Church. Okay, but one of these Ukrainian Orthodox churches now was granted uh, autocephaly or was granted recognition, or how did that, right? So since uh, for a couple of years now, right? The, yeah, 2018, yes. Well, it was not a, the, a church which was gra- granted recognition. Yeah. There was a new church established uh, uh, from the pieces that preexisted. Uh, those pieces uh, dissolved themselves, so the Kiev Patriarchate just uh, just cancelled itself. Uh, the same is with the Autocephalus, Ukrainian Autocephalus Orthodox Church. And instead, they formed a new church, which they called uh, the Orthodox Church of Ukraine. Uh, this church was established um, at the council in December 2018. Also, some bishops from the Moscow Patriarchate joined that church. So essentially, it's a new church. Uh, consisting of uh, of the pre-existent elements which had been abused and uh, this new church was granted autocephaly was officially by the ecumenical patriarchate this tome we call we call it tome of autocephaly that is the granting document of autocephaly which was granted by the ecumenical patriarchate in january 2019 so the church the orthodox church in constantinople which is istanbul granted this toma which is a recognition of the autocephaly of the orthodox church so just a autocephaly I, mean, I don't know if I'm saying it right. Autoce- I mean, that means that it's an independent. Well, what is autocephaly? Let's just explain what that is. To, yeah, literally, is. autocephaly means it's a self-headed church. Uh, literally, it's uh, it's a Greek word. Means uh, that means that uh, the church has its own head and uh, its primate is elected by the church itself. It's different, say, from the Catholic uh, church where there are some heads of the local churches, but they are approved by by the pope. We don't have this system. We don't have a pope who would improve, you know, approve uh, any primate of the church. We have the system of independent churches. There are fifteen of them, and. Uh, Ukraine became one of them, uh, but Moscow did not recognize this church and insist that Constantinople interfered, intervened violently to the situation in Ukraine and 
deepened you know the the schism that existed in Ukraine, and we essentially have a fight of two different narratives, two different interpretations of what is what has happened in Ukraine. The narrative of Constantinople says that Constantinople has established has granted uh, autocephaly legitimate autocephaly uh, self independent independence self headedness, so to say, uh, to a church in Ukraine. Moscow said that it didn't happen and continues to call this independent church a schismatic church. And now the Orthodox Ecumenia, the global Orthodox world, is somehow uh, divided. Some churches uh, have recognized this new church. Some churches want to recognize the new church, but are afraid of um, uh, retaliation from Moscow because Moscow is quite, you know, uh, it's a large Orthodox. So, okay. So, just to be, so I want the listeners to be clear. So, in the Catholic Church, you've got the Pope, and the Pope is basically the head of all of the regional churches in different countries and so forth. But in Orthodoxy, you have regional churches. They seem to be closely, usually aligned with countries. So, there's a Moscow or a Russian Orthodox. There's a Bulgarian Orthodox. There's a Serbian Orthodox, and the, these churches have their own head, and they they are in a kind of communion with each other. But they don't they don't they're they're into Independent, right? right? Right. And so uh, what the case was in Ukraine is that the Orthodox Church or the major Orthodox Church in Ukraine was part of the Orthodox Church in Moscow, was part of the Moscow or Russian Orthodox Church. Is that right? That's correct. And, and then, okay, and then after this war started, and there's obviously some precedent for this because there was already a breakaway Orthodox Church in Ukraine, uh, but at, in the last, it was 2018, then uh, there is now a independent Ukrainian Orthodox Church. And that's controversial. The, the, the Orthodox Church in Constantinople, which I guess is the oldest, I would assume. is the, Well, it is not the oldest, but it is the senior church. It's the senior, has recognized the legitimacy of the Orthodox Church in the autocephalous Orthodox, uh, Orthodox Church in Ukraine, but the uh, Orthodox Church in Russia does not, right? And that's maybe the largest or most powerful, I don't know, of the of the Orthodox Churches. So there's a conflict. Yeah. So, um, well, I mean, what's your opinion of this? Well, well, so, uh, okay, let's go back a little bit. I'm, I'm interested in, well, what, what's your opinion of the, of, of the, uh, uh, you said you were a priest in the Moscow Patriarchate, so yeah, what is your so view? I personally, I personally recognize Ukrainian for separate church. What's that? Uh, and still, I personally recognize and uh, this autocephalous church. All family. right, so you 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 favor the uh, yeah. And uh, I you was completely right and had had all rights to do what what it did in Ukraine. Okay, so how does how do how do Orthodox churches determine which churches get to be autocephalous? What are the conditions? Uh, I mean, you can't just set up a church, right? So, what are the conditions of autocephaly? How do how does that how does that work? If you well, want to be an odd Yes, well, it's on case-to-case basis, essentially. There are no common rules, no, no strict criteria, I would say. Because, you know, in the Orthodox, in the Eastern Christianity, uh, the system of law is different than in the Western Christianity. It's the difference like between, you know, the British law and the continental law, Roman law. And the British, uh, the British law, as you know, is based on precedence. Uh, there is no uh, codex of laws, as it were. Uh, in, the, in the well, in the sense, in the Roman sense, so it's it's very similar to the Eastern Christianity. Eastern Christianity is based on, on precedence, and uh, the Ukrainian Episcopal was granted on the basis of the precedence that existed in Balkans, in the Balkan uh, countries, in the particularly in the 19th century when uh, there was um, 
Well, the two largest empires uh, that had Orthodox populations and then the Austro-Hungarian and Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Empire, well, correctly speaking, Ottoman Empire, uh, they had huge Orthodox populations in them. And in the 19th century, those peoples, Orthodox peoples, decided you know, to split, to separate themselves from the empires. And uh, many of them uh, managed to, uh, to become independent politically, uh, including Greece, Romania, Bulgaria, Serbia. And uh, as a token of the independence, they also struggled to, uh, to, to become independent ecclesially, to, to have their own autocephalous churches. So that was the precedent, which uh, was confirmed eventually by the Patriarchate of Constantinople. And following this precedent, the latest uh, cases of this precedent were Poland and uh, uh, the Church of, of uh, Czechoslovakia. Nowadays, it's the church in the in in the in Czechia and this, uh, in the Czech lands in Slovakia. Uh, it's interesting that the Polish precedent in the beginning of the 20th century was based on the idea that. Poland once upon a time belonged to the Kievan Metropolia, uh, and Constantinople granted essentially autocephaly to its own part. On the same premises, on the basis of the same precedent, Constantinople in 2018 granted autocephaly to the Ukrainian Church as its former part, because remember I mentioned yeah. in the beginning that it was a part of the Ecumenical Patriarchate. And uh, uh, that is the justification that Constantinople gives to this act, that we gave uh, independence to our own part, our own peace. Most okay. of us know that peace was belonged to us for 300 years. Okay. So, so, the, uh, so basically, uh, most of this area that is Orthodox uh, was under the Ottoman Empire, right? Or not all of it, but a large part. And so as the, as the Ottoman Empire started to recede or these regions uh, gained their independence from the Ottoman Empire, Bulgaria, Serbia, <laughs> so forth, then they also wanted and they received eventually their own regional churches with their autocephalous. So it sounds the way you told it, it sounds like autocephaly basically is uh, something that is traced back to the uh, the end of the Ottoman Empire. Does that right? Or is it traced back to the That's beginning? Right. Well, uh, it goes back to the collapse of the imperial system in general, because not just the Ottoman Empire contained, you know, Orthodox people, but also Austro-Hungarian and Russian. Yes, yes. Uh, in this sense, the new this new wave of autocephalists that started in the, in the, end, well, in the beginning of the 19th century, it was uh, effectively, politically speaking, it was an anti-colonial uh, movement uh, against you know col colonization or colonial policies of the empires, and it continues to be. So we, we can, you can you can render you know the modern Russian policies as neo-colonial, and the uh, Ukrainian attempts to resist these neo-colonial policies as neo-anti-colonial. <laughs> Excuse me for my you know. Yeah, okay, okay, but and, but so, okay, but does autocephaly? I mean, does it go back to the to Byzantium or to the ancient? Well, it's period? a very old story. Autocephaly yeah. is a very old institute, but it had many iterations. It had it, it evolved. So then in the original, so today it seems like the iterations of autocephaly are, are connected to nations or na exactly. or national. But in in Byzantium or it's whatever the, before the opposite, if we take you know autocephaly in the Middle Ages, it was the opposite because autocephaly was connected with the imperial idea. Those states who is inspired aspired to be empires like the Serbian Empire, Bulgarian Empire, who wanted to be you know uh, alternatives to the Roman Empire, they wanted to get their own autocephaly. But it was a different story. We we will be confused if we just okay. You know, uh, take into uh, consideration detail. I just want to say that nowadays, the, at the present moment, uh, autocephalous 
movement is essentially an anti-colonial movement uh, in the Orthodox world, and it has been since uh, since the beginning of the 19th century, and it continues to be. And in this logic, exactly the Ecumenical Patriarchate acted. It acted in the in the in the logic of post-colonialism, and these logics clashed with the neo-colonial logics of Moscow. Well, so, okay, so but theolo- Okay, so I, I see all that, but let's just say I'm, I'm trying to because the, the the arguments are usually framed in theological terms. So theologically, what's at stake? I mean, there's a schism essentially in Ukraine, right? There's two churches don't recognize each other, and I mean, you normally, at least someone like me or some, you think of a schism as related to some doctrinal difference, right? So the Lutheran Church is, you know, is a schism from the Catholic Church because they don't agree on teaching. But there's no—is there any teaching that separates? No, no, no doctrinal differences whatsoever. Uh, only uh, administrative uh, quarrels and disagreements about the structure of the church. The the, the structures of the church uh, that is at stake and uh, indeed in Ukraine there was a schism so that the churches of the Kievan Patriarchate and Autocephalus Church that I mentioned uh, they uh, had millions of uh, followers people who belong to those churches and those uh, Christians were essentially in the in the situation of non-communion with the rest rest of the Orthodox churches uh, te- technically it is it is called a schism and what Constantinople did <coughs> did was that Constantinople essentially eliminated the schism, healed the schism uh, through granting autocephaly uh, to uh, the Ukrainian church. Uh, Constantinople essentially eliminated the schism. And it was a very important thing, I believe, ecclesially, speaking ecclesially, in addition to all political connotations. Uh, Moscow insists that the schism continues to be. But, well, as a matter of fact, what happens, any Ukrainian Orthodox person who five years ago, for instance, if he belonged or she, she belonged to, you know, to a schismatic group, could not go to Greece and take communion in any Greek church. Nowadays, that person can do that. Or, uh, and it does not exclude, you know, the people from the Moscow Patriarchate from going to, to Greece and taking communion there. Effectively, every single Christian in Ukraine can, you know, be in, in communion with the rest of the Orthodox world. That, that is a great thing, I believe. And that was exactly what Constantinople did. He so the schism doesn't affect the, at the level of individual believers there. They can go no. to different Orthodox churches. They don't feel uh, they're not separated. No, the quarrel is just between the administrative structures. Effectively, they don't recognize each other. But the faithful, you know, the grassroots level, uh, the people on the grassroots level, they are not affected by that. Okay, so you, because you mentioned earlier that there's some division in Ukraine. I mean, there's a pro-Russian faction and an anti-Russian faction. And so how does that, does that translate or affect the the attitudes towards these the Moscow Patriarchate and the uh, and the uh, and the Orthodox Ukrainian Church the oh, autocephalous certainly, certainly so yes because people who uh, sympathize with the autocephalous church they they certainly uh, uh, you know they fight for the Ukrainian cause and uh, the leadership of the Moscow Patriarchate in Ukraine was very uncautious to you know to support sometimes quite openly uh, the Russian aggression and it's not a secret that many well uh, in Crimea or in in the east of Ukraine, uh, the collaborators or the invaders, Russian invaders to uh, to the Ukrainian soil, were Orthodox priests. 
uh, and they blessed, you know, their weapons. They blessed their paratroops who invaded to to the Ukrainian soil. So the Ukrainian Church of the Moscow Patriarchate became tarnished with this collaboration with with the Russian aggression. But so how do? Because there are reports. I mean, when someone like and I can never people from the outside can never evaluate, but there's always these reports that there's fighting over various churches or parishes. So I mean, how does an individual parish decide if it's going to belong to the Moscow Patriarchate yeah. or if it's going to belong to the Ukrainian church? Yeah, the, well, the basic story is the following, and it's, it's quite simple, that uh, according to the Ukrainian laws, which were adopted by the Ukrainian parliament, every community has the right to decide which church uh, it wants to belong. And then if, if the majority of the community votes, then the community is supposed to join the church that it has voted to, to go to. Uh, the Moscow Patriarchate in Ukraine does not accept these logics. The Moscow Patriarchate says, no, it's not the community which has to decide. It's the bishop who has to decide which community, uh, where the community should go to. And uh, uh, they, um, if a community, for instance, decides to go to the autocephalous church from the Moscow Patriarchate, then they start, the Moscow Patriarchate starts a long series of, you know, uh, uh, court hearings and um, and uh, file different, uh, different kind of suits to, um, uh, to keep that community in the Moscow Patriarchate. And if the community doesn't want to stay, they call it persecutions, you know, a conflict, a religious conflict. But the thing is that the majority of people decided to go. Sometimes the minority uh, uh, resists. The majority of, minority of people say, we don't want to go. And they, you know, they create a lot of trouble, but they are a minority. So it's a democratic process. The majority decides to join you know, another jurisdiction. They do so, and uh, the minority uh, protests, and they say again, it's, it's a persecution against us. Okay, so good. So let's move yeah, on. The, I mean, the basic story, usually. Yeah, okay. Well, let's move on because we we're, we I, we've spent a lot of time on this, and we never we haven't gotten to your book. And I wanted to talk about your book, uh, political orthodoxies. So maybe could you just sort of summarize what the the argument? Uh, so the title of the book is political orthodoxies: the unorthodoxies of the church coerced. So maybe just summarize uh, for for the listeners what what the main argument of that book is. Well, it's uh, kind of uh, an old story about religion being politicized, a story which happens again and again in different contexts. And I explore a very particular context where this where this happens, uh, the context of Eastern Christian churches, some of them, not all of them. Uh, I, I study three cases, the case of Greece, uh, of uh, Russia, and of Romania. And I argue that through the history, uh, uh, religion became involved in politics, sometimes in nasty ways. I particularly focus on the situations during in the 20th century when uh, such um, uh, ideologies uh, adopted and cherished by the churches as anti-Semitism, as uh, you know, monarchism, uh, as nationalism, and study. I study how those ideologies worked in in, in the Orthodox Church. So essentially, it's it's a, a study of several cases, various cases of religion being politicized, politicized and instrumentalized for political purposes. Okay, so it's it's a, you, these political orthodoxies. The thing to catch to understand is that a political orthodoxy is in some 
some sense an, an unorthodox thing. It's, it's something it's that's incorrect. It's like a it's like a mistake, a theolo- or a heresy even. So well, political orthodoxy means that you a church has politicized its theology, right? Is that right? Exactly. Yes. Exactly. And you it's use it's very excuse me, it's very similar to what we call political Islam. And actually uh-huh. uh, and actually if if you understand what is political Islam, you probably can better understand what is political folks. It's about uh, religion, you know, merging with political agendas. Okay, good. So let's um, uh, maybe so you run through a number of cases, so we probably don't have uh, time for all of them. But I wonder if you just talk quickly about the Greek case, the case of Greek orthodoxy and, and how you see Greek orthodoxy becoming politicized or how it became politicized. Uh, right. Yes. Well, um I studied several cases in Greece, uh, like, for instance, uh, I mean, several uh, stages, historical stages in the evolution of political orthodoxy in Greece. Uh, Greece became independent from the Ottoman Empire in the beginning of the 19th century, and immediately after getting its its independence uh, from uh, the Ottoman Empire, it um, proclaimed autocephaly of its own church, and it set thus an example that modern states, national states, Orthodox states, they uh, want to have their own autocephalous church as a kind of a stamp uh, of genuinity of their uh, independence, of their sovereignty. In other words, in the perception, the political philosophy of modern Orthodox states, autocephaly is a uh, as a, a token, is an attribute sine qua non for sovereignty, political sovereignty. And it started in Greece, that is my point. Um, then uh, Greece um, developed some kind of national uh, identities and ideologies. Sometimes they turn to be a nationalistic and in, in their nationalistic forms, these ideologies uh, often made reference to Byzantium. I call it Byzantinism. And, you know, uh, a political ideology uh, refers to Byzantium, to the Byzantine past, in order to legitimize itself, to legitimize usually it's a conservative agenda, it's a very kind of nationalistic, in, which is strange because Byzantium was not nationalistic, it was the opposite to nationalism, but nationalistic regimes usually in the Orthodox milieu, uh, they usually uh, appeal to Byzantium as uh, a sort of model for themselves. And it was in Greece, it happened in Greece, like the Greek uh, dictatorship like the one of Metaxas before the World War II and then uh, after World War II uh, during the uh, dictatorship of the so-called Black Colonels 1967 through 1974 they appealed to Byzantium the same happened in Romania because Romania in the pre-war period interwar period had its own dictatorship of Antonescu and they also you know, appealed to Byzantium so I, I explore I try to analyze you know, those nationalistic uh, uh, ideologies that underpinned Okay, so yeah. So you start when you talk about Greece. It, it's you start at so as Greece breaks free from the Ottoman Empire, right? And then Orthodoxy is a sort of a connection between Orthodoxy and a kind of nationalism. But you see that as sort of supporting sort of Greek independence. I don't know. So you could tell me if I'm summarizing incorrectly. And then so and, and that's kind of a positive thing, or right? The Orthodox Church maybe at the beginning played a role in helping Greece to become its own 
nation or something like this. And right. then it becomes, but as it continues, it becomes um, negative, right? It, it goes in a, it's not quite fascist, but it goes in a very authoritarian and repressive direction. So there's a kind of transformation or a, an evolution. Is that correct? Well, that's correct. Yes. And uh, um, I argue in this book that uh, the national ideology originally emerged as an emancipatory force, as something positive, I would say, because national ideology helped those nations, oppressed nations in the empires, within the empires to liberate themselves. It was essentially a liberation ideology. Uh, and if you want, uh, national ideology is the uh, the best killer of um, imperial ideology, of imperialism. And that is the most effective weapon against imperialism. At least it proved to be the most effective weapon in, in, you know, in the Balkans. In the so you, in the book, you distinguish between ethnic nationalism and exactly. imperial nationalism. Well, yes, uh, let me, let me okay. explain this a bit in, in one moment. Okay. But now I want, what, what I want to say is that I distinguish between national awakening as a positive okay. and nationalism as an exclusivist ideology that uh, sometimes uh, succeeds a national awakening and it's not a good thing. Um, the difference between them is that uh, the um, national awakening fights against the exclusivism of imperial ideology, of imperial ideology. And it's about including, including you know, uh, small minority groups and including their interests. Nationalism, it's about excluding other national groups. When, you know, say uh, a nation which separates, splits from the empire on the basis of this liberation national awakening, develops an idea that I'm not just, you know, an oppressed minority. Now I am a hegemon in the region and I exclude other nations that separated in the same way from the same empire, as it was the case, for instance, in Bulgaria or in um, in uh, Serbia. Or take Hungary, for instance. It's a very interesting example, I think. Take Hungary. Hungary, when it was a part of the communist bloc, it was really an, an, an oppressed uh, nation, right? They suffered from the, the from the communist occupation. And if you go to in Budapest to the to the Museum of Terror, uh, to that great museum place where you can learn how Hungary suffered in the Soviet times, and you see the fight of Hungary for you know for its independence. And now what we have in Hungary is is a different situation when a nation that suffered was oppressed now is becoming oppressing. For its neighbors, trouble troublemaker for its for, for its neighbors so, like Ukraine. That is a sort of transformation that happened to, to several authors. So is that is that transformation inevitable? Or how, how do you how no, do you I don't think no. it is inevitable, no. It's it's a transformation by choice. Uh, it unfortunately it's 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 it happens quite often, but it should not happen necessarily. So how would you guard against this sort of negative transformation? How would you keep the the uh, the good thing, the national awakening, but uh, avoid the bad thing, this sort of exclusive uh, nationalism? Or what's the or is there a role for the church or the Orthodox churches or so, how would how do we balance here? Yeah, I think it's important uh, at the fork. Uh, on the road towards independence, it's not. It's important not to miss, you know, the the right path, not to go the path of of exclusivism, of you know, of the thing when they say an oppressed, when an oppressed becomes an oppressor, uh, not to miss this point of 
preserving, you know, this momentum of liberation, of emancipation, and cherishing this emancipation liberation and disseminating further, cultivating this this emancipation liberation further. When say a nation that liberates itself continues to bring this liberation, you know, to other people and to uh, you know to to it's it's like if you take. It's something that happened to the United States. Of course, the United States, States has its own shortcomings, a lot of them, right? But it's exactly what happened to the United, to the United States. It was an oppressed, an oppressed colony by the British, right? Then it got its independence, and it managed to preserve this momentum of, you know, of liberation and, you know, bringing this liberation to other nations. Notwithstanding all the difficulties and, and shortcomings and so forth, but it continues to be like that. So that is a, a different example. The United States, I think, it demonstrates that it is possible to avoid, you know, this transformation to an oppressive power after receiving, you know, liberation. And okay, so is there something in the churches or in Christian theology or Orthodox theology that makes churches or Christians vulnerable to, um, yeah, this negative transformation? Yeah, the Orthodox Church may contribute in, in both uh, ways uh, to this process. The, Orthodox, the Church can enhance the transformation to a nationalistic power of, say, of a liberated, uh, fresh liberated nation to become a nationalistic superpower. The Church may contribute to that. If you take, for instance, the Serbian case, Serbia, which was oppressed and was was oppressed actually in two empires, in the Ottoman and Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, and became liberated, united, and so forth, and became an independent state, and became a regional empire under you know the Yugoslav uh, state. Uh, this transformation happened with the assistance of the church, and even uh, recently, you know, the regime of Milosevic, which was, was which was exactly an example of you know of an oppressive power, it happened with the assistance of the church. Of course, so what, church, what, yeah. What which parts of, of the church are, are? What are those parts that are vulnerable to this negative? I mean, if, if you want to protect against the negative development, where is it? What, what which parts of the church are? Which aspects of the church make it vulnerable to this? Well, all aspects may, may make it vulnerable. Uh, it may be you know a popular piety because on the popular level, pe- people may encourage, may be happy uh, to embrace this kind of ideology. Uh, it can be also enhanced by the bishops. It can be pro. pro- promulgated by the priests, so all levels in the church can contribute to that. What is, uh, what can prevent this scenario? What can make the church contributing not to the you know, nationalist cause, but to the liberation cause is theology, essentially. What kind of theology the church follows? And uh, there is a nationalistic theology that underpins, you know, all those regimes and uh, bad transformations, and there is a healthy theology. And that is my point, that when theology turns into ideology, Ideology, it becomes dangerous. It, it becomes toxic. It contributes to uh, you know to a very negative transformation in the nation. Theology should be uh, should be positive. Uh, let me take the example of Germany. I just finished reading a book, a wonderful book by Yale University Press, uh, the Theologians under Hitler. It studies three cases of three theologians, German theologians. Probably you know you are aware. Of yeah, I just did a. I did the previous podcast was with with the author of that book. Okay. I, I, so, so go ahead. No, that's a great book. Go ahead, summarize it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's a great book. It, it exactly indicates that Germany, which with its you know huge 
important theological tradition has produced two kinds of theology. One theology uh, supported by those, you know, Nazi theologians like Althaus, like uh, Hirsch, uh, like uh, Kettler, and another sort of theology promoted by people like Bonhoeffer or uh, Obart. Or Tillich. Uh, those those guys were friends originally. They came from the same same uh, milieu, the same background of liberal theology, and they separated eventually. And they produced two different sorts of theology. One uh, collaborate, corroborating and, and uh, collaborating with Nazis, and another one opposing Nazis. The same is with the Orthodox, you know, in the Orthodox world. What I try to do in my book is to produce a sort of theology and or to indicate where theology can can go in order to oppose, to rebuke all those negative transformations and you know and developments. Okay, good. So what are the features of the healthy theology? What do we what do we need in the for healthy theology to guard against these dangers? Well, I would advise us to read what Hofer, you know. <laughs> uh, but in the Orthodox, well, in the Orthodox Church, we had our own theologians who who had produced this healthy theology, like people like, for instance, Father Alexander Schmemann, who was um, an emigre theologian in the United States. He was a rector of St. Vladimir Seminary in, in Europe, uh, who criticized you know, the contemporary developments in theology like this, this sort of Byzantinism that I mentioned. And instead, he, he insisted that truly that liturgy, you know, Eucharist, a community can be a basis of, uh, of a healthy theology that can prevent the negative scenarios for the Orthodox nations to, you know, to transform to monstrous nationalistic, you know, quasi-impious. Right, so the danger, it's the politicization when 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 the when theology becomes political or uh, starts to advance explicitly political agendas that that's exactly. when it becomes dangerous exactly. and exactly. if it focuses and I also believe that uh, this negative bad theology, theology of the kinds of Althaus and, you know, Hirsch, uh, yes, yes. It, uh, uh, even though they try to keep distance from political developments, I should say, but I believe they were not true to the sources of this theology. And I believe it is important to be true to the sources of our own theology in the Orthodox uh, milieu, because we, we had in the past uh, great theology, and we sometimes we instrumentalize this theology exactly to, you know, to, to corroborate political causes and ideologies but when we stick true to the sources to the gospel you know to the fathers of our church uh, then we can avoid those negative scenarios so it seemed like you said at one point in your book that I mean I don't know I'm using it, putting it in my own language but there's like uh, the good kind of theology has a different horizon so it's not focusing on uh, so, solely on politics but it's looking at un, uh, invisible <laughs> things or what you could just say the gospel or the it's spiritual the dominance the kingdom of God exactly. the kingdom of God, these transcendent things, which of course shape uh, uh, shape our everyday concrete life, but it's it's shaped in light of this uh, transcendent perspective, which transcends politics. And the danger is when theology or churches collapse and uh, assume a political rise, and this is really where they become dangerous. Okay, so thank you, thank you very much, uh, Cyril Hooverin. And the book again is "Political Orthodoxies: The Unorthodoxies of the." Church Coerced. It's a short book. It's a good. It's a good book, uh, and I recommend it to everybody. Uh, and so, thank you, uh, thank you very much for coming on uh, my podcast. We had a little uh, bump in the middle, but I, I think it'll work out. Uh, and to all my listeners, thank you for listening, uh, and uh, see you next time. Thank you.